um, a really kind of scary, frightening time from your childhood, a time that we all dread. Uh, knowing the audience, maybe some of you don't dread this as much because your school's a little different. Um, but think about uh, Labor Day, right? Maybe a day like this, January 2nd, January 3rd, maybe any Sunday of your whole life, right? That dread that school is coming back tomorrow, right? And this is always worse when you have homework that you have avoided until the end of break. There will be children all over America who sometime probably Tuesday night at about 5 o'clock are going to go, Mom, I didn't do that 15-page packet that I had to do over. What? Right? And now all of a sudden we're scrambling. We're trying to get our work done. It is no fun to get to the end of a break because break always starts with such hope, right? I have all this time off. I'm going to get all these things done. It's going to be so cool. And then you get to the end of the break and you're like, I did nothing but eat. The entire time I was off, what did I do? You know, like the whole thing has flitted away from you, and now there is nothing left but the pure existential dread of I've got to go back to it. Some of you may have experienced that this week, right? Going back to work after uh, being gone for the holidays. I know some of you guys came back for like a day, right? And then you were left again. But there's just this feeling like, ugh, I've got to do it again. And that feeling is somewhat common. I think the entire world kind of feels that tomorrow morning, right? There'll be lots of parties tonight. They'll be like, yeah, 2018. And then they will wake up Monday morning. And they'll be like, I've got to clean this mess up, right? And you start to look towards a new year. And some of you are excited about it. And some of you are actually probably terrified. Because depending on who you are, you look at this year thing different. Some of you are uber practical. And some of you say, hey, a new year is just 24 hours after the last one, right? It's just an accident of how we keep track of time. It's not a real thing. It's like birthdays, right? It's just a number. It doesn't make any difference how old I really am. doesn't matter if it says 2017 or 18 on the clock. Whatever. It's not a big deal. But for some of you... You just, you have years and you've given them sounds, right? It's like 2014 and you smile, right? Other, you know, many of us, 2017 is just ugh, right? You're just glad that it's over. We've had a lot of period of anxiety and frustration and confusion in the world. And so as we look towards that new year, it's easy to have that dread of what's coming next and how am I going to get through it? And I wanted to spend a little time this morning talking about a passage that maybe gives us some hope about how we get through it in a good way. All right. And I'm going to do that by drawing out one more passage out of John. I do want to preach about the new year. I also had one thing in John I was feeling really guilty about not hitting this fall. And I thought, hey, we pulled John into the Christmas sermon. We might as well pull him into the new year sermon. Right. There's one more section of passages I wanted to deal with in John um, before we're done. And so we're going to talk, uh, this is interesting, I mean, it fits our context because Jesus is talking to his disciples right before his death. And they have sort of the dread of what it's going to be like without Jesus. And Jesus gives his thoughts on why they don't need to worry so much about what things will look like in the coming adventure for them uh, as, as a group. 
John, uh, this is going to be a, a variety of passages in John 14 and 15. I brought them together thematically. I don't. I usually preach a whole text, but today we're going to just do these texts that are thematically connected. Um, it's not my fault. John wanders, and I'm just trying to keep one thought in mind. If you love me, keep my commands, and I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All right. Um, so John uses this word that's kind of unusual. All right. It's not a word that we see many other places. Um, and I put this word on the screen. This will, again... I'm talking about Greek words two out of three Sundays. I promise we won't do this that much. But this is a really important one. And that is that the Holy Spirit is being sent to you as a paraclete. Not a paracletes, but a paraclete, okay? Maybe that'll help you remember the word. And this is a word that is notoriously slippery for English translators. And one of the reasons is just because it's a word that has several meanings. It's been used by... Um, Greek thinkers, both in Judaism and outside of Judaism, in a variety of ways. And so because of that, we kind of have to pick a word. And if I was translating the Bible, which I'm not, but I'm going to this morning, uh, my word would be the word counselor. And the reason I like the word counselor is because a counselor has some of the same attributes that the word paraclete has in English the same way it has in Greek. Okay, And there's two, there's two main ones of those. Uh, the first is a counselor, as you would think about as a counselor, like a, um, a therapist or a psychologist, even maybe a guidance counselor. Uh, we even use this term a little bit for like financial, like a financial counselor, right? But it's somebody who listens to you. It is somebody who helps you when you're having a hard time, somebody who provides you comfort and somebody who encourages you. And a counselor is somebody who is there to help equip you to reflect on what's going on and get ready for what's coming, right? And this is an important role when you think about Jesus' situation. Jesus says, I'm about to leave you, but don't worry, don't get upset because you will have a counselor. You will have someone who will be here with you to be with you in your hard times. Somebody who will help you when things are difficult and you need somebody to listen to you and help you process things and to encourage you and build you up. And in that way, the paraclete, the counselor, is coming to you. Now, that's not the only use of the word. We have another use of this word. It's a little more technical. Um, and it's probably more the, what the Greek is going to. Uh, if you've ever watched L.A. Law or, you know, Law and Order, one of these shows, right? We are used to this term in a courtroom. 
right? The judge always says, counselor, come to the bar or whatever. I don't know. I don't watch that many of those shows. But there's a counselor is a, a lawyer, someone who gives you legal counsel. And this is actually more what is probably being meant in the Greek. This is why I think the NIV makes this decision to translate it as the advocate because they want to make sure this legal distinction is the one that's foremost in your mind. And a counselor is someone who goes before you in court and represents you in court. This is an important term, and it's something we haven't really got into in John. But as you read through the book of John, what you'll note is that John has um, a lot of legal terminology in mind. All right, And it's easy for us to miss it because we've kind of uh, spiritualized and Christianized this language. But there's a couple ways that, that John is constantly thinking of a courtroom. Uh, one of them is Jesus is always talking about testimony or witness, right? Remember all these passages we went through in our feast groups where Jesus says, if you want to know that I'm the son, my actions bear witness to who I am. Or the father testifies on my behalf. Or if you want to know, uh, this is even really technically there with um, the man that was born blind who's healed, right? And they're literally sort of putting Jesus on trial and the man bears witness or testifies to what's going on. So there's that sense of, of legal uh, jargon in the book of John. Uh, also, Jesus talks about bringing us before the Father, right? He's talking here kind of as the way a lawyer would re represent someone before a judge. When he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. He's kind of showing his legal advocacy for us and on our behalf. Also, when the uh, Pharisees and the, the religious leaders are against Jesus, Jesus often says things like, I will bear witness against you to my Father for what you have done. And again, it's the idea that they're going to be on trial before God. Uh, even in the way John talks about the book, John says, uh, the one who has written these things testifies to what he has seen. There's this idea that the whole book of John is a legal affidavit that's being put into the court of your opinion to prove to you who Jesus is. And in all of these ways, John is constantly talking about a court. Sometimes God is the judge. Sometimes the religious leaders that Jesus deals with are the judge. Uh, sometimes our own mind as the reader is the judge. But in all those ways, there's always somebody arguing and bearing witness and bearing testimony. And this continues with the way he talks about the Spirit. That when we come before the Father, we have a lawyer who is able to help us um, go through the process. Uh, if you've ever been through a legal situation, it's kind of scary, right? Like, I mean, I'm, we're going through a, just an insurance situation right now. And it's a pain in the neck, right? Because there's all these processes and there's all these rules and there's all this waiting. And you want a good lawyer that says, tell you what, let me walk you through this and bring you before a judge in the way you want to be brought before the judge. And Jesus, in that way, says this paraclete, this uh, counselor, is your legal counsel as well. So I think these two things kind of come together where we have this presence who both argues for us but also brings us comfort and encouragement. And Jesus says that when he leaves, that we will have this, uh, this advocate, this paraclete that goes before us. I want to just point out a couple other things as we look at what it means to live life with an advocate on our side. Uh, one of the things... Um, one of the things is I want you to see how this is a continuation of Jesus' work. 
Um, we've talked about this a little bit because John forces us to move towards sort of more sophisticated Trinitarian theology, this idea of the Trinity, that God is one essence but three persons. I don't love that language any more than you do. It's just technically what we're supposed to use, right? This is really difficult to understand. But what I want you to see is that as we talk about Father, Son, and Spirit and the work that Father, Son, and Spirit do, there's always a balance here. There's always continuity and discontinuity, similarity and difference. And I want you to see that what Jesus talks about here is that there is a lot more about the similarity of the Spirit and the Son than the difference. Notice Jesus says, I am sending to you another advocate. Well, you have to have one to start with to have another one, right? And so who is the other one? The other one is Jesus. Jesus has already served this function for the disciples. And so as they get ready to live in this you know, brave new world with no Jesus by their side, he says, the Spirit will take care of you the same way I have. Um, this is other... This is in other books in other ways. When you read the book of Matthew, um, Jesus leaves the disciples with a great commission. And he says, I will be with you even unto the end of the age. I think that he's talking about the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in the book of Luke, it's really interesting. Uh, Luke is two parts, Luke and Acts. And we always think of Luke as the book about Jesus and Acts as the book about the church, right? But when you start the book of Luke or book of Acts, Luke says, I will now tell, uh, in my first book, I told you about the things that Jesus began to do. Okay, now the book of Luke includes death and resurrection. That's kind of like, oh, all the things that Jesus did in our minds. But Luke says, no, those are only the things that Jesus began to do because Jesus continues to be active in the book of Acts. And I think a lot of that is via the Holy Spirit. Luke has his own pneumatology. Um, this also comes out, I feel like I'm getting very far afield, but this also comes out in, um, we don't just use the word Holy Spirit. The New Testament also talks about the Spirit of Christ, which is kind of a weird term that we don't often use. It talks about the Spirit of God for the Holy Spirit. And I bring all this up to say that for Jesus, the work of the Spirit in their lives will be a continuation in the same kind of work that Jesus was already doing. That the Spirit works in our lives the same way Jesus worked in the life of the Twelve. To provide comfort and legal counsel before God and just to, in all these ways to provide um, stability and help. Nate, can you go to the foyer for me? Thanks. Sorry. <laughs> uh, nothing wrong, just a little business. All right. Uh, so it's it, continuing the work of Jesus. Um, the other thing I want you to notice, I always hate preaching about the Holy Spirit because I like to be able to explain to you how things work. And when it comes to the Spirit, I often cannot do so. And the thing is, Jesus tells us that ahead of time, right? Jesus says, the, he talks about how the world is not going to understand this and they're not going to hear this, but you get it. This is one area of Christianity where as much as I want to give you great evidences for how it works and great apologetic like arguments for the Holy Spirit, I think Jesus is really clear here. When the Spirit works in your life, when you get this comfort, when you get this help, it is something that people who are not Christians just will not understand. It's something that's going to sound goofy and it's going to sound difficult. And you're going to get it and you understand it intuitively, but you can't explain it.
That gives me comfort as a preacher because I can't explain it well. I have a sense and I can try to tell you how I think the Holy Spirit works in my life. But it helps me that Jesus comes right out and says, no, that's not, it's not how this works. It's going to be very difficult to explain it. And the world's not going to get it, and that's okay. Because this is a very intimate thing between God and a believer. This is something that's not always easy to understand. Uh, one of the other things he talks about is how the Spirit is a teacher. Jesus says, uh, the Spirit's going to remind you of all the things that I have taught you. Uh, there's this sense that when we read Scripture, it's one thing to read the Bible as like an atheist reads the Bible, but it's another thing to read the Bible with the Spirit working in your heart and helping explain Scripture in your mind. Uh, there's this idea that we have supernatural help in understanding these things. Again, that gets to a place that I can't understand well and I can't explain well, which frustrates me, but it's one of those things that, that Jesus talks about the Spirit doing in these passages. Uh, the last thing is I just want to mention that he, uh, oh, two things. Uh, he talks about building up your faith. He says he's going to remind you of all these things so that you'll do all the things the Father has told you. Um, there's this sense that we need constant encouragement and constant building up, that we need God to continue to help us to walk forward in our faith. And the idea here is the Holy Spirit helps us to do that. And maybe frightening, most frightening of all for some of you, um, there's also the idea that in building that up, that that last bit is so that you will go then and share your faith as well. That the Spirit then builds you up so that you'll share with others. So why do we talk about all this stuff? Uh, I have no idea what the next year looks like for many of you. Um, for some of you guys, the next year is probably going to be pretty exciting. Uh, I know, you know, we're looking forward to a baby or two, right? And so that is exciting. Uh, for some of you guys, this is a year just to get done with. Some of you are also desperately hoping to be finished with schooling of some kind, or you're hoping to get over something. As I mentioned, I'm just having a van to drive again would be a lovely thing that I'm looking forward to in the new year. And as you get into that stuff, you may have a little bit of that existential dread of what's, what's, coming, what's coming to me, what's coming next, where am I going, how am I going to get through it? Some of you may be already thinking about your tax bill and wondering how you're going to pay it, right? Like these are just things that we worry about at the beginning of New Year's. And as Jesus came to the disciples and their fear and their worry about what life would be like without him, he said, I give to you a gift that's not a gift like the world gives you. I want you to have peace. I want you to tackle whatever you're about to tackle with comfort and strength and peace because you know what's coming and you know who is with you. You have a counselor who is by your side to encourage you and to help you. And so um, I've just kind of taken these things and I paraphrase them for you. I hope that in this you find some comfort and peace for whatever is coming next uh, in your life. In your year that's coming, uh, as you follow Jesus, know that Jesus promises to continue his work in your life through the Holy Spirit. That Spirit is your counselor. He provides you with comfort and he pleads for your situation before God. The work of the Spirit is going to be very hard to explain, but you will know it when you see it. He also is going to build you up in your faith 
He's going to help you and augment your study of God's word. And in the end, he's going to actually help you to share it with other people too. May that peace that Christ offered be with you in our new year. All right. Uh, as we mentioned, we always do a Q&A. So uh, if you have questions about today's topic, I will do my best to answer and or avoid it since it's a hard one to talk about. <laughs> but no, really, if you have questions, uh, please go ahead and fire away. It is really hard. Uh, let me give you a phrase that helps me feel better. It doesn't help give you more solidity to your answer, but maybe it helps us just feel camaraderie, okay? Um, this is really interesting. When you look at the book of Acts, uh, Acts 15, the church has a major problem in that they're trying to figure out how to include the Gentiles in the church. And there's some of them that think that the Gentiles should have to be circumcised and become fully Jews before they can become Christians. There's others that say, no, God wants us to welcome them with open arms. And they have a big hairy fight about it, right? And we hear the back and forth debate. And then eventually they come to the conclusion, yes, we'll welcome the Gentiles, but we're going to give them four things that we really want them not to do. Okay? Like the four things that most offend our Jewish sensibilities and that we don't want them doing. And some of them are things that we continue to worry about, like um, food, um, meat, sac or, uh, blah, 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 blah. like sexual immorality, right? That's one of the four things. But one of the other things is don't buy meat from the butcher shop if it's been strangled. I don't know. I don't think most of my meat is strangled, but it's just not something I worry about, right? But it was something that was a big deal to them. As they get this list, they start this letter to the Gentiles about their acceptance, and they use the most remarkable phrase. They say, it seems best to us and the Holy Spirit to only ask you to do these things. Now, these are the apostles. This is Peter, James, John. This is all the big guys, right? Uh, not the original James, the new one. But anyways, this is all the big guys. And they have spent a lot of time praying and asking for God's guidance. God has literally appeared to Peter in a dream saying, all foods are clean. Don't worry about this stuff. You know, they've seen the Holy Spirit poured out on people who are Gentiles. They're still debating it. And after all of that, when they're done, their phrase is, it seems good to us in the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is our best guess about how to do this. Uh, you want them to say, like, the Holy Spirit hath declared by his holy apostles that this is what we must do. But they don't say that. They say, it seems good to us in the Holy Spirit. Um, later, there's a vision that Paul has about the Macedonian call, right? This Macedonian who wants him to come and do missionary work in Greece. And it says, the Bible says that when they woke up, we discussed it amongst ourselves and decided to go. They didn't go, oh, I had a dream, that settles it, let's move. They still had a little, like you know, conversation to figure out, okay, what does that dream mean? All that to say, even the apostles had times where the best they could do is say, it seems like the Holy Spirit's telling me to do this. And you are no worse off than the apostles if you go, it seems like this is what the Holy Spirit's asking me to do. Right? The fact that you doubt so intensely, whether it's your own desires or the Spirit, means you're not likely to get conned, right? Like you are really thinking this through. And I think in the end, you pray for guidance. You try to have a sense of what the Spirit's saying. And in the end, you say, it seems good to me in the Spirit to give money to this guy. And you're doing just as well as the apostles, if that's where you get to. Does that make sense? Okay.
even for Jesus. Uh, I can tell you based on my understanding of the population spread of ancient Judea, Nazareth and Galilee are not the most efficient places to touch the most amount of people possible, right? If Jesus wanted to literally heal as many people as possible, he would have jumped on a boat and gone to Rome and sat in the middle of the busiest square in Rome and touched people and, and, and healed them. But often Jesus says, I've been called not to, I've been called to the lost sheep of Israel, right? Jesus has a sense of, I have a mission and a calling. The spirit has asked me to do this thing. And that's the thing I'm going to do. And efficiency doesn't, it doesn't, I mean, Jesus never goes, we're going to this town because it's far more efficient to heal more people over there, right? Like, I, I'm not trying to make fun of you, but that's, it's just, you know, the reality of, of what we see. Any other questions?